Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. Come and grab a seat. If you've got a Bible, could you please go to Psalm 132? Psalm 132, we'll be looking at that. Just um, for those of you who haven't been here uh, before, um, just to catch you up, we're in our series on life's playlist where we're looking at some of the Psalms. I'll explain a little more, a bit more about that in a moment. But what we do at the beginning of each of these sermons, we thought we'd give you an opportunity to meet some of our leaders and hear a little bit about what they've been listening to, what their life's playlist is at the moment, what music has been buzzing around their life, and then we'll see how this applies to what we find in God's Word. So we've got Anna to come and talk to us today. Can we give Anna a welcome, please? Uh, so as Stuart said, I'm Anna, I'm married to Joe, um, and here at Real Life Church, I co-lead one of the kids' teams, um, joint with my mum, Wendy, which I count as a huge privilege and a joy. Um, growing up, um, my music taste well, basically was Disney music, um, so my family have been subjected to endless hours in the car of listening to my Disney CDs, but also having to listen to me singing along because I basically knew every word. Um, to be honest, my music taste is really varied. I tend to go by songs that I like rather than listening to particular artists. Um, so to give you a bit of an idea of just how varied my music taste is, um, I put together a playlist for a party recently. So I thought I'd just read out some of the people that were on that playlist. Um, so it included Kings of Leon, Tom Walker, Calvin Harris, Ed Sheeran, Maroon 5, Little Mix, Venga Boys, Lady Gaga, Britney Spears, Katy Perry, Shania Twain, Avril Lavigne, Queen, Michael Jackson, McFly, Rihanna, George Ezra, and Fleetwood Mac. So a little bit all over the place. Um, both Joe and I are very partial to a Christmas tune. Um, so from basically the 1st of December onwards, our house has just got Christmas songs on a constant roll. Um, and we actually had a Christmas carol in the worship at our wedding, which was in the middle of June. Um, I listen to Radio 1 a lot. We have that playing a lot at home. Um, and I drive around Birmingham for work. So central and west Birmingham visiting patients. <clears throat> and um, I basically have worship CD CDs on most of the time. So it's such a blessing to be able to just praise Jesus as I'm driving around Birmingham. Um, to be honest, I'm not that picky. Like any worship music, as long as it points to Jesus, I'll just sing along in the car, and get quite weird looks at the traffic lights. Brilliant. Okay, thank you, Anna. Can we give her a clap? You, you take that. Oh, you got that. I don't need that. Thank you. All right, okay, have you got the um, Psalm 132? Now, the reason we get people to talk about their music is because we're looking at the Psalms, which are the songs of the people of Israel, and we've been focusing in on the Psalms of Ascent, which is a series, a group of Psalms within the whole body of the Psalms, numbering from Psalm 120 to 134. And we began this series a while back. We've been going through them, and we're almost at the end. Psalm 132 today. We've got two more, and then we will round out the Psalms of Ascent. Now, the reason this is a particular group within the Psalms is because these were the group of Psalms that were sung by the pilgrims, the people of Israel, as they traveled from their homes to the city of Jerusalem for one of the three annual feasts that were celebrated throughout the year. God laid down the law, these feasts that would be celebrated by the people of Israel. 
uh, to recognize him and all that he had done and to, to celebrate and they would all travel into Jerusalem and to do that and in that process they would sing these songs and the three feasts were the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and the Feast of Booth or it was often known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason they're often called, they're called the Psalms of Ascent is because as they traveled to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a city on a hill. So to get to Jerusalem, one had to ascend, one had to go up. And then in the city, where they were ultimately heading for wasn't the city as such, but it was the temple. Because in the temple was the presence of God, and that was on the temple mount in the middle of the city. So again, they had to ascend to get to the temple. So hence we get the name. Um, the Psalms of Ascent. And if, as we've gone through them, we found they've covered all sorts of aspects of life and uh, the highs and lows of the journey of the pilgrim. And we've applied it to our own life of the ups and downs of life as we follow Jesus through life. And so this is our playlist for life. And as we've looked at the Psalms, we've noticed an internal structure to the Psalms. If we put that up, they come in groups of three, trios. And the first one of the trio is a situation of stress. Something has happened in the psalmist's life that's difficult. Then we've seen the Lord's power to deliver. And then finally, a sense of the God bringing the pilgrim home um, and being safe in the hands of God. And we've gone through all those, all four, three of those trios, to the final one where we finally reach the destination. So we've made it to the city. We've made it to our, where we were heading. And for the pilgrim, that was Jerusalem. So we've reached Psalm 132, which is what we're going to look at today. So this very much focuses about the city of um, Jerusalem, Zion, and everything that's going on there. What we've also done for this series is we've put a song alongside it to kind of help us remember it from one of our modern pop songs. So if you hear it on the radio, hopefully it will remind you of what it is. And today's song, which hopefully will apply perfectly to what we're going to look at today, is this one. Do you know it? It's, it's the... the, the Everyone's looking blank. You got it. Okay. Who knows the name of the song? Sorry. We, we're, this is one of the biggest songs of the last two years. I'm just saying. 198 million views on YouTube. Gone double platinum. Am I the only one down with the kids in here? I really am, aren't I? Go on. What is it? What? Promises. That's right. Promises by Sam Smith and someone Harris. Calvin Harris. Honestly, guys. Sam Smith and Calvin Harris. Promises is what we're going to look at today. Promises of, in the Word of God. Now, promises are something we're all familiar with. We all make promises. We've made promises throughout our lives. Some big promises, some little promises. Some of those promises we've even kept, haven't we? Have we broken more than we've kept? Assess your life. We make small promises. Yes, I'll be there at 10 o'clock. The check is in the post. And we sometimes keep them. We make big promises. Till death do us part. And we try desperately to keep those ones as well. And what we're going to look at today in Psalm 132, there are a couple of promises that come out. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to read it to you. I will read it up here if you want to follow along if you don't have a Bible with you. It says this, Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house 
or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his own dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I'll make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Big idea. God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. Now, if you've been following along in this series, what do you notice about that psalm? It's an awful lot longer than all the others. It is by far the longest of the psalms of ascent, as much as twice as long. Some commentators say that points to its significance and importance within the collection because it has more about it. There's more to it. And there are two key important things I want to just bear in mind as we approach the psalm. The first one is David. David turned up, I think it was four times. We read this is a reference to King David, the great king of Israel, the mightiest king of Israel, the one who um, killed the giant Goliath, the one who's chosen by God. Is, does God describe him as a man after my own heart, a hugely significant character. I think outside Jesus, David is mentioned more in the Bible than anybody else, and he turns up in this psalm. The second thing is uh, Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. It's referred to as Zion there, the city, um, God's city, which was the place of the temple, uh, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was, and it was the center of the people of God. Their spiritual epicenter was in that city and the place where God kind of put his name and put his presence, and they turn up throughout the psalm. The psalm can be decided, divided into two sections. It's 20, li- 20 lines long. Each section has 10 lines in it, and within it, it alludes to a couple of stories from the life of David, if you've read them. One of them in 2 Samuel 6 where it talks about David when he brings the ark into Jerusalem from where it's been, kind of to uh, put it in the center of the city. And another one where uh, Samuel, uh, no sorry, 2 Samuel 7 where the prophet Nathan comes and speaks to um, David saying that actually your dynasty, God is going to put someone on your throne who will ultimately reign forever. It's not just going to be you, there's going to be a dynasty come out of it. And both sections of this psalm revolve around promises. I hope you pick it up, there's the word oath in there. Uh, it says um, they swore, so there's this idea of making promises. And the first section is David's promise to God, and the second section is God's promise to David. So let's dive in and look at the first section. Okay, David's promise to God, verses um, 1 to 10. It begins with hardship. It says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured. That word hardship, it reference to pain and suffering, even humiliation and shame. 
And they start by saying, remember that, O Lord. So why did David suffer like this? What, what was this reference to? Well, we find in 2 Chronicles that in preparing to build the temple, it was such a massive architectural undertaking, they had to get all the resources together. They had to get the stone and the wood and the gold and all the other bits and the cloth to make the curtains in the temple. It was a huge thing. And so before they could start building, they had to gather all the stuff together. And we read in 1 Chronicles 22, it says this, with great pains, David said, I have provided for the house of the Lord. 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron and weighing and timber and stone. He's provided all these things. Obviously, it was a huge commitment to get this temple built in Jerusalem where the presence of God would be in the sense of people where there would be worship. And it was a hardship, an undertaking that required effort. It wasn't something that took lightly. And it meant David had to keep going and going and going at this. It wasn't easy just a one-off thing, a one-day sort of job. No, it had to be attacked, go at again and again and again. And in the process, it says in verses 2 to 5, David made a promise to God. What did he promise? He says, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyes. And until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Almighty. And what we have here is a reference when David had conquered the nation. He was the king, finally, after all the stuff that happened with Saul. And he built a palace in Jerusalem, as kings should have. And it suddenly came to me, it's like, wait a minute, I've got this super house I live in. Isn't it amazing? But God still resides in a tent The tabernacle that had been built under Moses as the people of God came out of Egypt from slavery. God's still in a tent. That's where his presence dwells. And I've got this super fancy permanent house. So from this, I want to build him a house. I want to build something amazing that is worthy for God's presence. Something permanent. Something that we can look to that points to the magnificence and grace of God. And he refers to God in there, in that verse, as the mighty one of Jacob. Now, why does he do that? Well, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. Abraham's the one God called out and said, you know, I'll make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. I will bless you and you will bless the nations. He had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. And there was a moment in the story when Jacob uh, had a, a dream one night and he wrestled with God and then he woke up and he said, God's presence is here. And he, he set up a stone, an altar to mark the fact the presence of God had been there. And so the, the psalmist is referencing the fact that there wants to be a place where God dwells. Jacob had experienced it, and now David himself said, I want to build this place where God is dwelling. God is going to be. God is going to be in the midst. And he made a promise. He basically said, I'm going to pull an all-nighter. I'm not going to go to sleep. I'm not going home. I'm sleeping at the office until we've cracked this where I find a place where it is. I'm going to put my focus and my effort, and I'm going to sacrifice for it. I'm going to sacrifice my time. I'm going to sacrifice my sleep. I'm going to do this. Another kind of link back to his hardships. And then it alludes finally in this section to the story of the ark. It's got those two places, one of them which is hard to pronounce, Ephrathah. And the fields of Jar. They're both references to places. Ephrathah is a place near Bethlehem, around the area where David was from. David kind of being the one involved in this process. And the fields of Jar is a shortening of another place where the ark had been kind of left 
after it had been returned from the, I think it was from the Philistines. After they stole it, they got it back. And David wanted to move the ark from where it had been back to Jerusalem to be at the center of everything, to be at the center of God's people, the place where his presence was, because the ark of the covenant had the Ten Commandments in, among other things, Aaron's rod in there. And it was where the presence of God came on the mercy seat. Um, to atone for the sins of the people. He said, I want this right in the middle. And we have this reference um, this, uh, to the story where David brought it into Jerusalem for all it is. And he wanted to bring it to his resting place. And there's the image there. He says, the image of the ark of your might, which was a reference to the enemies of God being defeated. Because when the ark went and the presence of God went, the enemies of God just melted away and fell away and they couldn't stand against the power of God. It was a, a, his presence is mighty. It says, let your priests go with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. Where God's presence is, the righteousness, the rule of God is, and everything is in order and everything is right with the world. And there is, naturally, there is joy from the people of God because when the world is ordered rightly and everything is working, there is great joy there. And so we have David's promise to God, I'm going to build this place for you. I want this place for you where your presence is and your people can come and your, your word is proclaimed and everything is right with the world and everything works and we're following your commands, we're following your laws and as a result there'll be joy and righteousness and peace. Lots of good stuff. And then we have at the back end of the psalm, God then makes a promise to David. Because David is a good one, I want to do something, but actually God comes back. And this, end, this part of the psalm is again bracketed with David's name like the first one. He's very much what it's about. And there's four little things that come out of there that God then promises to David. The first one, he promises that there would be God's king on the throne. He says, the Lord, the Lord swore to David a sure oath, a promise, which will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. If your sons keep my commandment, I'm sorry, my covenant and my testimonies, I shall teach them. Their sons also shall sit on this throne forever. God's promise to David was that one of his sons would sit on the throne. And we know that as we follow the kind of the storyline of the people of God after David's reign, you get son Solomon that rules on the throne. Then after Solomon, the nation splits, northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. And in Judah on the southern kingdom, there is David's line, which continues. The sons of David continue sitting on the throne. But there are obviously problems in there. Because if, there's an if, if your sons keep my covenants. And alas, they don't. More and more, they become worse and worse along the line till eventually um, they are taken from Babylon. So there's that kind of caveat. But at the same time, he says, actually, one of your sons will sit on the throne. Who do you think he's pointing to at that point as we look forward? So there's God's king. He said, I promise, God promised I'll put one of my kings on the throne. The next one, we see God's city. He says, for the Lord has chosen Zion, this city. Now, as we read in the Bible, we see that David's the one who took Jerusalem. David's the one who conquered it, and he made it his city. But behind that, we see the sovereign hand of God. He's the one who chose that place. He's the one behind it. I chose that place where I would dwell with my presence. That's where I'd be. That's my resting place, his city. When it comes to building the temple, I'm the one behind it. God said, it's good that you're doing what you're doing, but ultimately, it's all about what I'm doing in this place And we know from reading the story, David had the heart to build the temple, but he never actually got to do it. It was his son, Solomon. He stored everything up, and his son, Solomon, ultimately the one who fulfilled it and built the temple. The next thing we see is God's blessing. He says, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy the poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints sound for joy. So what they've been asking for in the first half, 
God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do with my presence. I'm going to come and I'm going to bless you because when my presence is there is great blessing. And I will satisfy everyone, not just the, the wealthy, the, the upper class, the elite. So it actually says, I will satisfy the poor with bread. It's a reference to the entire of society will be affected by the presence of God, not just the privileged few, but everyone gets to enjoy it. And the priests will be clothed with salvation and the saints shout for joy. So what they prayed for earlier in the psalm, God says, I will do that when my presence is there. And finally, there will be God's victory at the last couple of verses. It says, therefore, I will make a horn to sprout for David. The horn is a symbol, a reference to royal power as a king would have on a throne. They would have might and power and strength. And he says, I will make a horn sprout from David. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed to shine, to be glorious um, in that place. And the, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And that final part there, the tense of it is actually looking forward to the future. He's saying, actually, your sons, there's going, to be, there's going to be sons who come after you who will reign with power and might, and I will find my face on them. But we know from history that it didn't always work out like that. We find that there were sons in the line who, um, who didn't believe, who didn't follow God, who turned their heart away and ultimately ended in, in failure. But at the same time, from an earthly level, we see the failure of David's line. And this, uh, the, the nation of Judah was destroyed by Babylon eventually because of their unbelief and rebellion. We know ultimately it was fulfilled. We all know ultimately, looking ahead, there was one from David's line who came to be king. And who was that? Jesus. Jesus, through Joseph, his adoptive father, was from the line of David. That's why they had to go, when the census came, which town did they have to go back to? Bethlehem, the town of David. And so there was one coming. This psalm points very clear ahead in the promises of God. I will bring someone who will sit on David's throne and rule and reign forever. Jesus, when he came, he lived the perfect life. He died death on the cross in our place for our sin. He rose bodily from death, victorious. He conquered the power of sin and death so that we might be forgiven, that we might be go free. And we see that he is very clearly God's king who will rule and reign forever. He's actually referred to not just as a king, but the king of kings, the one who rules and reigns above it. We see that there is God's city, God's dwelling place. Where is God's dwelling place on earth now? It's in the church. It's in us. God's spirit dwells in us. So no longer is it a place that we have to travel to, It's actually within us and within God's gathered people. The presence of God is right here. God's city is the church. But it's not just that. What are we looking forward to? A new heaven, a new earth, and there'll be a new Jerusalem. There'll be a new city where the people of God will be with him forever. We know God's blessing on us now because the Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost. And who's it been poured out on? Everyone, young and old. Men and women, rich and poor, everyone can have God's spirit. And we know we can experience salvation and freedom from sin and forgiveness and being adopted into God's family and knowing him as father and being part of this great community. We know we can have joy and blessing in God and all that he's done. And finally, we can experience God's victory over sin and death. One day, they will be gone forever. Because in that new heaven and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, it says there'll be no more crying and no more sickness and no more tears and no more death. 
that blessing that they've been praying about in the psalm, it's coming to us. It's coming. One day we will experience it forever, all of us. And so there is a psalm there that has got the promise from David to do something for God, but the much greater promises of God to David that we actually get to experience inherit ourselves today about the great king who would sit on his throne and bring freedom and blessing to all people. And so how do we take this away from us? What does it mean for us? How are we going to apply this to us? Well, there's a couple of things I want to just put before you today. First one, we are to have a passion for God's presence. A passion for God's presence. That's ultimately what David's vow to God was about. He was driven by something. He says, God, I want your presence. And not only just I want your presence, I want it near. I don't want it over there. I want it near in the center of your people, in the center of the political community life of this nation. I want your presence there. I want a temple. I want the ark in the temple, in the holy place. So your presence is right here amongst us so we cannot miss it. And David also said, not only do I want that, I am willing to set my life to pursue that goal. I am willing to endure hardships to get there. For David, there was hardship financially, emotionally, for the nation as a whole to bear, to gather all that stuff, the wood and the stone and the gold and the silver. There have been great commitment from the nation as a whole to get behind that. And he said, I am going to pursue that presence of God with everything I've got. And I'm not going to leave it as a periphery. I'm not going to leave it as an afterthought. I'm not going to sort of have a take it or leave it attitude. I'm going to go after it with everything. And as the people of God, we are to have that same passion, that same zeal, that same desire, that same emotion to seek God's faith, to go after him with everything we've got. And we have, just to make kind of the, um, the difference here, there's a uh, theologians often refer to kind of the general presence of God and the manifest presence of God. The general presence of God is sort of the fact that God is everywhere at all times. Uh, I think, what's they say? Is that omniscient or something? He's omnipresent. Omniscient is all-knowing, isn't it? That's right. Omnipresent is all places. He's both of those things as well, plus a few other omnis. But he's everywhere. He's everywhere. But actually there's a sense in the Bible we find the manifest presence of God where he comes up in a certain intensity and he's in places and people when they gather, when they gather to pray, when they pray for the sick, when they stand up against injustice. We find stories throughout scripture actually God turns up in power and that's what we're to pursue. We're to pursue those moments of the presence of God as we come here together on a Sunday We're to be here and say, as a body, as a family together, what are we going to do? We're going to pursue the presence of God together. So I put a challenge before you today. How are you doing this? How are you doing in that? Give yourself a little kind of MOT, diagnostic check. How are you doing in your own personal life? Reading the Bible and prayer, that's where it begins. Study of God's word, praying, intimacy on your own. It's got to begin with you before we kind of look out to us as a family. How are you doing with reading the Bible and prayer. We encourage you regularly. That's what we want to do. If you need help on that, grab someone in your life group. Talk to others, older, wider Christians. Say, how do you do it? How can we get into God's Word? There are so many ways to get into it. To read it, to listen to it. You read books at a time. You go through it slowly. You have study aids that can guide you all the way through. I'm currently reading through the book of Isaiah. Um, I I love those Bibling journals that the... um, 
the ESV put out where you've got a Bible and you've got a big page next to it. You can write notes. That just helps me. gives me something to do uh, while I'm reading and thinking and praying. How are you doing in praying? We have the Lord's Prayer as our kind of our, our model that we can pray through regularly, praying for people, praying for this church, praying for family. How are you doing in those things? We've got the summer coming, kind of chance to maybe try something new, do something different, encourage you in that. What about our corporate times when we gather together? How are you when we come together in prayer? What's your attitude as you come through here into the room? And I know what this is like. I have a wife and children. So when you get to church, for me, just getting through the door is a big win. We made it. I didn't have to throttle anyone. You know, everyone's okay. No one's crying. This is a good thing. But when we get into the room here together, are you here? Are you ready to go? When the bands start, yeah, we're going to see God. We're going to go after him. We're going to praise him. We talk to our kids every day. Come on, we're going to praise Jesus. You know these songs. We play them at home. We try and encourage them. Are you, do you do what you can to praise God, to raise your hands, to close your eyes, to sing the top of your lungs and say, God, I'm going to go after you with everything I've got. When the word is preached and we say, hey, who wants to respond to what God has said? Are you like, I'm going. Here's a little tip for life in church. Even if you can only identify with what they say, respond, just, just respond. I think I've, you never miss out by coming forward and getting prayed for. It just, it's just one of those things. In all my years in church ministry and leadership, no one ever misses out when they say, yeah, just pray for me. It's always a good thing. So always come with that attitude to respond. Here's one that I know is going to go down. What time do you aim to get here? Just saying with your attitude. Come on, let's get here. Let's get ready to go. Let's pray. Let's worship. Let's pursue God. What about your life group? When we come to life group, we always say in your life group, you want to eat together, talk together, and then pray at the end. Don't let that bit get kicked out the back of the meeting. Let's get together. Let's pray. Let's seek God. Let's call on him. Let's pray for one another. Let's just celebrate his goodness when we share bread and wine together. Thank you for your death and resurrection, Lord, that I might have life. What about our corporate times of prayer? They go in your diary first. Yes, we're going to gather together to pray. They're the best meetings in church life. Let's do that. We worship together. We seek God's face. I know when it comes to these things like David who faced so many hardships, we can make excuses. It's too hard. I'm too tired. It's too late in the evening. There's so many other things going on. I don't like the particular songs that they sing. That's not my favorite. I'm not going to sing that one. Pursuing the presence of God is a choice you have to make. You have to make. You have to make it. No one else can make it for you. You've got to make it. And so I encourage you to ask me today, how are you doing that? Make that choice. Make it every day to pursue God. Like Anna said, play music in your car. Play your worship songs. Pursue him. Read your Bible. Pray. Go after him. When you meet with other believers, just spend a moment in prayer committing to God. Do everything you can to pursue him and follow him and make his presence. And we're going to do it in a moment. You've got to make a choice. We're going to worship God together and see what he's got to say to us and see what's going to happen. Are you going to do that? Are you going to make that choice and follow him, even if you don't like the song? It's not your favorite. It's not about you. It's all about him. Second thing, we're to pursue God's uh, passion for God's presence. The next thing, we are to trust in God's promises. We are to trust in God's promises. God promised David that someone would sit on his throne forever. 
God promised David that there would be one coming. And we have the privilege of knowing who that is. We have the privilege of knowing the fulfillment of that promise, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know God's promises are true. We can see them in his word. We can experience them for ourselves. And we know that God's promises never fail. His promises never fail. They're all yes and amen, aren't they, in Jesus. And we have, sitting here, we have received many of those promises personally. Maybe only in part there's a greater fulfillment to come, but we have still experienced them. We've experienced salvation in Christ. Jesus says, just come to me. Come to me. And I will forgive you. I will take those burdens off you and I will give you peace. And if you're a Christian here, you will have experienced that. You will know what it means to be forgiven of all the things that we've done, all the things that we've done in thought and word and deed, all the things we haven't done that we should have done because of our own cowardly hearts. We know that we've been forgiven and set free. We know that we've been declared not guilty before God and we stand before him righteous and holy as saints as priests, we're a priesthood together, aren't we? One great holy nation. We know that we've been given the Holy Spirit to dwell within our hearts. God's presence is now within us as his people. And not only that, Jesus says, come to me and ask and I will give you more. I will give you more and more and more. We can pray for the Holy Spirit amongst us. God said, I will provide for all your needs, not your greeds, but your needs. And many of us will have experience of that, God providing what we need when we need it. Jesus said, I will give you peace in the midst of troubles. I love that he promised troubles. You never see that on the, what, all the God's promises list, all the things are good things. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Thank you, Jesus. But he says what he says. I have overcome the world. So, when you're praying through the, trouble, the promises of God, write troubles, and then write round it, circle it, I have overcome them. So whatever you're facing now, whatever that trouble is, a relational situation, a work situation, a health situation, something that's just coming on you, Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome it. I am greater than it, I am stronger than it. And ultimately, it will go away because we've been given one of the greatest promises in that is we have a hope and a future. And so whatever we face in this world, the good and the bad, one day we will see something better, see something greater, see something bigger. One day we are going to see our Lord and Savior face to face. And that's his promise to us. One day he said, I, you will be with me forever, Jesus said to his followers. And that's not going to change. That's not going anywhere. So we have one of those great promises to stand on. And even if the troubles in this life just increase and ultimately they're still there when we die, we're going to go to a place where they will never be and they can never get to. And we will have an inheritance that cannot uh, spoil or perish or fade and we will be with Jesus for eternity. And so maybe this summer, if you're kind of sort of sure, what do I do? Maybe you want to spend some time in God's word looking up his promises looking up the promises of God that he has made to you as his, one of his people, that maybe you want to sit there and maybe write some of them down, maybe just meditate on them, think on them, maybe just spend some time thanking God for them, 
all those wonderful gifts he's given you, all those wonderful promises he's made you. And even when we can't always see the fulfillment of them, and actually we're waiting for some of them to come about, maybe you're waiting for a need to be provided, you're waiting for healing to come. It might come in this life, but it will definitely come in the next. You can hold on to them and say, God, you are faithful. Your precious and grace promises. You can rejoice for the ones he's already fulfilled in you in terms of your salvation and your forgiveness. And you're being righteous and holy as saints before him. What a wonderful privilege and a pleasure to be. All right, we're going to stop so the band can come back up. Do you want to just stand up? I'm just going to lead us a little bit of prayer and then the band are going to lead us in some time of singing and worship. And we'll see what God's got to say to us to finish. You want to just close your eyes, open your hands. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your servant David. Lord, I want to thank you for his example. Lord, I want to thank you for his passion for you. Lord, I want to thank you that no matter the hardship he faced, he managed to keep his eyes on you. No matter the difficulty he went through, and if you know David's story, there are many of them, thank you he kept his heart towards you, Lord. And I pray, God, I ask you give us something of that in our hearts, that passion for you, that passion for your presence, that no matter how hard or difficult it is right now in our life, going through this situation or that situation, you know what they are. God, I pray you keep our passion for you and your presence right at the top there, Lord. I pray you give us grace to seek you in the face of hardships to seek you when things aren't going well or they're not going the way we wanted them or life seems to have taken a left turn and we wanted to go right. Lord God, give us that passion, Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would continue to remind us of your great and wonderful promises. We would you continue to remind us of their fulfillment in Christ. The great promises of the Old Testament says, I will send someone to sort out the problem. And then that you came yourself and walked the earth, lived amongst us, Lord Jesus. I thank you for that promise fulfilled in a stable in Bethlehem when you came and the heavenly host sang. He's arrived at last. Lord, I thank you that you remained faithful throughout your life and you lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died on a cross, Lord. And I thank you that you rose bodily from death. And you're ascended into heaven and you rule and reign on the Father's side. And you control the universe from the stars orbiting to the tiniest cells in our body. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are ruling over all. We thank you that you've made great promises to us to love us, to care for us, to watch over us, to bring us into a family, to forgive us, to make us righteous and holy before you. Thank you, God, that we can come even now boldly into your presence and worship you and make demands and requests of you. We can just do that. We don't have to go anywhere to a place and get a priest to do something for us. We can just enter because we are the priests in that great temple you are building throughout the world. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And we stand here today looking forward to the great fulfillment of all these promises on a new heaven and a new earth but one day we will see you face to face one day this old order of things will have gone forever there will be no more crying and no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears and we will enjoy your presence forevermore Lord we look forward to that day 
Lord, and we ask you to give us grace to live in the moment now, but gives us eyes of faith to see our future and how wonderful that will be. God's people say.